Hello and welcome to the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. My name is Alistair Bain and I'm joined with my co-host, Mr. Stuart Flaherty. How are you doing, Stuart? Good, Alistair. How are you? Good, thanks, mate. This is the first in what will hopefully be a very long-running series of accompanying podcasts to the multiple analysis that we'll be putting out on the platform. Just want to take a minute before we get going today, folks, just to speak a little bit about Retro Football Analysis, what we're about and what we'll be bringing you. Um, as you can see on our, the front of our website, we're going to be specialising in a number of different areas of analysis, the first of which being uh, a tactical analysis, bringing you match reports um, from games of the past, classic games of the past, in this case obviously Euro 96, but games from all throughout the ages. We'll be doing video analysis, breaking down match footage with a sort of modern slant uh, data analysis, obviously looking... Uh, to upgrade obviously the statistics and the data that's readily available to everyone and then really as well finishing on some opinion pieces um, Stu looking at this project you and I have been obviously speaking for a long time about this but what is it that really got you going about this programme and what uh, what you like about the, the retro analysis of football um, I just think you know the analysis technology we have at our hands now is um pretty much unprecedented when you compare it to what was available in 1996. Mm -hmm. You know, you're watching the old coverage, and these are, at the time, the best producers of a game available with the best info they had. Um, but it's nowhere near what we see nowadays. You know, and when I, I think to myself, when I went from playing to coaching, I, I actually learned from some of the better, uh, better presenters, better analysts. I know Andy Gray, and his Sky coverage, his old boot room shows, and the way he broke down games, a lot of the matches that they did analysis. Um, even nowadays, I'll get a pen and paper out sometimes watching Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher uh, give their opinion on the game. So I think to give that kind of coverage, including the detailed statistical analysis available today, to, um, to tournaments like Euro 96 and before, we'll see it through a very different lens um, than we saw at the time. It's a great point you raise there, Stu, about the analysis of the past because I think it's definitely become part of the sort of modern lexicon of football coverage, right, to break it down, to analyse it to almost the nth degree. Um, but I think also when we talk about what happened in the past, we do so, we create narratives, right? We And a lot of those narratives were framed through newspapers. So a lot of our opinions are certainly the common knowledge is brought to you by people who wrote about football and not necessarily were, were from football. Um, is that something that you've found, certainly over the last couple of weeks, breaking down uh, the Euro 96 games, for example, that you've saw, has, has your sort of concept about football from the past changed any, or is it yeah, yeah. self-development? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if we really want to get deep here, I remember reading a psychology book that said... Um, you know, when you think about something, you're not thinking about the event. You're thinking of your last memory of that event. And the more times you think about it over time, uh, the more detached that thought gets away from what actually happened because it's skewed by emotion. So I'll give you a couple hours to process that one, Ali. But, um, you know, I, th I think especially when it comes to football, you know, 1996, I was 18 years old. And I'm watching that through a purely emotional lens. You know, and um, when you listen to people's memories of tournaments, um, a lot of it is based on emotion. And you're watching through emotional eyes, which you have to. You're a fan. Um, 
but I can tell you just now, like Paul Gascoigne's performance, um, watching it at the time and watching it now, you just come away with, uh, you know, very different opinions. Sure. Let's elaborate on that, Stu, because I think we're legally obliged whenever we talk about your 96 to divulge where we were in our lives at that time. So let's share with the listeners real quick where you come from, what your experiences were of your 96, and yeah, just general memories in that time. I watched almost all of those England games, if not all of them, at bars in and around Middlebrally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bluebell in Acklam. Nice. The Grenadier in Acklam. Dr. Brown's in Middlesbrough Town Centre. Uh, that is where I watched those England games, you know. I hail from what was regarded to by many as the, the cultural vanguard of West Central Scotland in Hamilton. So Home of football. Between, you know, uh, games of backgammon and uh, discussing existentialism um, with, <laughs> with, the, with the, the many coffee houses in Hamilton... Uh, we were just completely and utterly taken in by this tournament and I think I have lots of memories of the World Cup in 94 I have literally no memories of Euro 92 so I think for me for sure this is my first uh, European Championships I remember but I I just think this is really the spark for me Stu anyway and I'm sure over this series we'll discuss this more of how football became almost popular again I mean you look at the crowds for example and again I'm sure we'll talk about this lots more at the end but the crowds as we watch your 96 it's almost unthinkable now to think of a game any game of football getting played in England that's not at capacity right? Yeah yeah. I mean what blew me away is watching um, Romania v Bulgaria in front of about 25,000 people right. at St James's Park Um which Newcastle would probably get for a Carabao Cup game against a lower league team. Right. And Stoichkov v Hadji. And all that's and they're just coming off the 94 World Cup. It's not like the world doesn't know who they were. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you, you wonder. It's a different conversation, but everyone always says, you know, Sky's killed football, you know, live football's dead, this and that, yet the crowd's... Um, at the time, don't really justify that. Crowds are a lot bigger now. Um, much, much bigger attendance numbers now than there's ever been. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, my memory emotionally, all I remember, because I only watched England primarily, is full stadiums, and that's not really the case throughout this tournament. Yeah. Well, let's get into it then, Stu. Let's take a quick um, sort of State of the Union as to the European competitions. Uh, of the time headed into Euro 96 so real quickly Champions League final Juventus beating Ajax it was a 1-1 draw in the match this is Ajax's second year in a row in the final they'd obviously won it the year before with this um, you know dream team as it were almost under Van Hal. Juventus the big bad wolf coming in fantastic side obviously taking the game on penalty kicks any uh, any memories of this one? Um retrospective memories you know i remember watching the game vaguely and then i remember fabrizio ravinelli signing for middlesbrough and just having my mind blown that he'd been starting in the uh, in the champions league final and now he was going to play for middlesbrough 
Fantastic. Well, the next one was the UEFA Cup final, uh, which, again, blows my mind to think this is over two legs. You know, a final played over two legs is unbelievable. It would be a 5-1 victory for Bayern Munich over Bordeaux. Um, not one I remember, Stu, for sure. The one uh, game I do remember from this run, remarkably, was um, a game that Wraith Rovers would play against Bayern Munich in the early rounds, and they'd have a, a, an early goal in Germany and force it lose, and then get turned over in Scotland. But uh, any memories of this particular tournament? Um, I can't remember the score. I remember Nottingham Forest getting absolutely dismantled. <laughs> right. Seven by by it there you go. Right. So good lord, seven two. Um I do remember that. Um and because of the T V coverage at the time, you know, you could watch a lot of English soccer, but watching uh watching world soccer was a very different thing with the exception of Paul Gascoigne's coverage in Italy. Yeah. And it just made you doubt how good the Premier League actually was when that was happening to our teams in Europe and you know, so there was a bit more mystery and a bit more aura to the teams from across the water than there is nowadays. Um, Another observation from this, you know, I was looking at the Czech Republic team and uh, just looking at their seasons before and there was a lot of those guys on Slavia Prague who make a semi-final here and it's just, it's noticeable the variety of club names you see in the latter stages of knockout tournaments in this era and how the, you know, the money has sort of concentrated all the players and it seems a smaller range of clubs um, consistently reaching the final stages of European tournaments nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point there, Stu, you've got um, in the semi-final of the, the Champions League, Ajax beating Panathinaikos and Juventus beating Nantes. I mean, geez, Panathinaikos and Nantes would be teams you wouldn't even expect to make the group stages nowadays, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that they're finishing top 10 in the Premier League nowadays, sure. are they? Well, the, the last one, and this is an interesting one, I'll get your take on this, the, the Cup Winners' Cup. This was a, a tournament that um, obviously is down in, in history for, for my club, Rangers, having won this back in the 70s. Um, this particular tournament obviously is, is, is no more. would finish, I believe, two years later. 1998 would be the last one. Um, so in this particular game, Paris Saint-Germain would beat Rapid Vienna. Absolutely no memories of this whatsoever, Stuart, if I'm honest. Uh, we'll neither. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. I do remember watching some English teams in finals of the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, I believe this was the tournament. Naeem uh, dropped one on Seaman from the halfway sure, line, wasn't yeah. it? And Chelsea winning it once. But this particular year, you know, I had a look and I think the furthest we had was uh, was Everton, maybe. And I don't even know that they reached the quarterfinals, so... No memory, if I'm being honest, um, of this tournament. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, it's gone. All right. <laughs> well, the the one notable uh, name that I, I implore everyone to follow along with us doing this series is a certain Trifon Ivanov, who is a Bulgarian sweeper, who I'm sure will be speaking lots about doing this series. As uh, certainly he's a player I've warmed to for sure do, do, watching these Euro 96 games so he was unfortunately in the losing side with Rapid Vienna that night it was a number of the the French team obviously playing for Paris Saint-Germain and what an amazing thing Stuart to see a, pa- a PSG team with more than one Frenchman in it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh, you know we would talk about looking looking back through history and seeing it through different eyes you know like a I've certainly gained of uh, an appreciation of players that I didn't necessarily have at the time, and 
there's players you watch who are a lot better than you realise, and I think one of those players is definitely uh, Yuri Djokaev, who uh, put PSG to the final here and won it. Sure. Well, let's take a quick look then at the Euro 96, the championships itself. So England would be awarded it on the 5th of May 1992. The teams that were competing for that bid, Stewie, were Austria, Greece, Holland and Portugal, which the interesting piece about this was that, this was something that slipped my mind, was England had actually applied to host uh, the World Cup in 98. So this was almost seen as... Um, we'll give England the Euros first, see how they do, and then potentially go after it. And it's unfortunate that that World Cup bid didn't materialise, I believe, for this year, right? 2020, I think they'd originally bid. Uh, yeah, I mean... 2022, I, rather. I'm not, I'm not completely sure how bids work, but I do wonder if the crowd numbers hurt England, which, you know, it'd be almost unthinkable now to say to yourself, yeah, they'd never host a tournament in England, they couldn't draw the numbers there. Right. But, uh, you know, if anyone's listening to this and can't believe what they're hearing out of me, uh, trust me, I can't believe it either. Just go back on Wikipedia and just read the attendance figures. Right. Oh, it's, it's for sure. It's unbelievable, especially at the bigger grounds, right? Like the, the Anfields yeah. and the, the Old Traffords. Um, so during the qualifying process, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about this as we go into the tournament more to give us some context, but the, the qualifying process would begin in... Uh, September of 1994 and would work its way right through to November of 1995 so with all of the teams qualified uh, and England in there as, as hosts um, the draw would take place on the 17th of September 1995 um, the groups coming out as they were Stu this is an interesting one here there was four seeded uh, for the main competition right the, the two first two being England obviously as hosts in Denmark as the previous winners back in 92 the next two teams that were seeded were Germany and Spain and the interesting one with this for me is is that this was the highest ranked teams from Europe obviously in the FIFA rankings and it's crazy to think Spain being that high right given obviously what we know about this Spain team at the time and certainly the one one we've watched at the Euros it doesn't seem to seem to correlate at all does it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were beaten by Italy in the '94 World Cup mm -hmm. um, in the last eight, um, and Italy made that World Cup final. So, I mean, I just, you know, you accompany that with the fact that Italy have uh, qualified for this event as well. You'd wonder how they're not in the seeded group. That's for sure. Increase in size due from your '92. Obviously, we'd see the, the competition double. Is 16 teams a bit of a sweet spot for this tournament? Obviously, given now Christ is what, 412 teams, I think, can qualify and everyone gets a... <laughs> yeah, um, I was surprised to hear it was extended because, you know, like the first thing I think when I watch it was, wow, only 16 teams. That sort of uh, right. narrows the field down. It's funny how the world changes. And my major concern is for the kids, Ali. You know, you're collecting those uh, Panini stickers <laughs> for tournaments nowadays. This is going to be the size of a phone book. <laughs> Well, it's also crazy to think, Stu, back when it was 16 teams, Scotland actually could qualify, which uh, even though now and with 412 teams, we still can't. So Yeah, that's, that's for another podcast, Ali. <laughs> so the one slight twist on this one, again, no knowledge of this until going back and looking at it, was uh, Holland and Republic of Ireland 
um, going through a playoff round. Now, the qualification process leading into it, they had obviously all the group winners went through. The teams that finished second, they weighted their points based on who they played against and, and their, uh, the amount of points accumulated from the teams finishing first through third. So Holland and, and Republic of Ireland were actually the worst runners-up, so they'd play a playoff at Anfield. Holland would win that match. And the interesting piece of that, Stu, is the, we, I looked at an article in The Independent, the betting odds uh, going into this draw instantly made Holland the 9-2 to two favourite. Hmm, bit of a head-scratch of that one. Makes, makes no sense at all. Um, also, shout-out to Republic of Ireland. Um as in the qualifying group six, Liechtenstein played ten games, scored one goal, conceded forty. <laughs> but did get one point from a draw with the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> Outstanding stuff. Just a really generous team. Just passing the points around. <laughs> wow. You know, to think to think Stu, that could that, that one game could have essentially put uh, put Ireland through in front of Holland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way things have worked out. The other betting odds, then let's go through it real quick here. Italy uh, and Germany both ranked five to one. England seven to one. And amazingly, Stu, if you'd have put on a bet for the Czech Republic to get to the final and win, obviously not just to get there, but to win it, would have been eighty to one. The worst team in it. Worst team in the tournament, according to bookmakers' odds, which is you know. <laughs> Amazing. Um, the Italy thing's not a surprise, you know. I remember at the time, you know, your opinion of Italy. It's shaped by the Channel Four Serie A coverage. Um, they've lost the World Cup final on penalties to Brazil, so Italy, in my mind, was certainly a very, very strong team. Um, and if I, you know, I go back to the time and pick a winner, I will probably pick them. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, watching the games back, um, player-wise, I, I'm I'm astounded that they uh, did perform as poorly as they did sure. in the tournament. Sure. Okay, so let's go into the groups then. Let's take a quick look at each of them. Just do a quick rundown, obviously, what we thought maybe at the time. Um, and then obviously the, the sort of balance of play. Obviously, folks, as we go through this series, we'll be talking about each of the matches round by round and obviously how that shapes the narrative as to who's going through. But let's start off with Group B. Um, so that would consist of Spain, Bulgaria... Romania and France. Looking at these, Stu, at the time, obviously 1996, like you mentioned, not a ton of European football on the TV at the time. Any of these teams in particular, looking back, you can uh, you know have any memories of? Yeah, strangely, it's the two teams that uh, went out. You know, I've got very vivid memories of uh, the 94 World Cup and there's always a bit more, you know, romance and attention on underdogs and Bulgaria and Romania and the tour, the runs they had in that tournament. I, I remembered clearly, I remembered Stoichkov, I remembered Hadji, I remembered Lechkov. Um, so they're the two teams that, uh, you know, struggled in the group, but they're probably the two I have the most vivid memories of. Um, but like reading through the personnel on the France team, um, it's no surprise they did so well. You know, they conceded two goals in 10 games in qualifying yeah. uh, they got Lamar in goal Desai Blanc Lisa Azou Zidane Jokaev Karimba Dugarry Loco I mean they're just they're stacked sure 
It's interesting though, we, we mentioned Spain earlier, obviously in the rankings, and again, maybe this was just my perception of Spain at the time, was this was a team that just always failed to deliver, right, at the, at the big tournament, it, no matter what area that they played in, it was always told to me by my dad, you know, uncles, whoever it was watching football was, Spain will be decent to a point, and then, then usually bottle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the bottle term is massively overused, you know. And then you you win one tournament, and everyone rewrites history. And then the next best team to have not won is a bottler, um, and the cycle the cycle goes on. But that that was certainly the uh, the narrative surrounding Spain in in every single tournament they played in until uh, until they broke their duck and then won another one soon after. You know? <laughs> certainly a very different Spain team. Um, to this to this particular one um, okay so let's move on then group C a really interesting group this one Stu because you know you look at Russia's qualifying campaign and completely blew everyone out of the water you know they, they drew twice with Scotland and beat everyone else which is again amazing to think Scotland were, were drawn with teams of that calibre um, sixth in the world at the time Ali you're going to drive off every Scottish listener we have yes pal. yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll maybe have some positive things to say about a couple of them later on but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe we have to use them at a premium uh, but the rest of Group C was Germany obviously Czech Republic Italy and obviously the Russians um, this on the surface of things, should have been an absolute cakewalk for for Germany and uh, in Italy, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I said you know at the time I probably had Italy down as even stronger um, than Germany, but everybody knew about Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, we've just discussed what Bayern Munich did to Nottingham Forest. You know, Matthias Sammer at the time is one of the best footballers in the world. Um, I know Dortmund. Uh, to my memory, if I'd correct me if I'm wrong, went on a deep, deep European run that year. So, yeah, I, th- I think Germany and Italy would have been huge favourites to progress out that group. This is an Italy side, Stuart, that we'll talk about, no doubt, pretty much every episode. Because, again, for me, it's probably one of the most compelling stories of this particular tournament. More so for what they didn't do, obviously, than what they did. They had, obviously, Rigo Saki as their manager. Um you know, revered manager in the late 80s, early 90s. Had a lot of fallouts, though, with players, and not all of them can be on the player <laughs> at some point. It's yeah. perhaps the manager. Yeah. What was your thoughts, yeah. then, of the guys who didn't go? I mean, obviously, we've got Viali didn't go. Uh, Chiro Ferrara, who's the Juventus captain, refused to play. You know, obviously, Roberto Baggio is the other big omission from, from this squad. Yeah. yeah, Baggio was definitely the biggest shock, obviously, with his performance. Like, I always, you know, I follow English football closely, um, but I am guilty of, you know, the the other teams, you know, putting a pretty heavy emphasis on the last World Cup when we go into a Euro, mm-hmm. for my opinion of them, and Baggio was the man. Um, and it was it was shocking uh, to see him not going. And, yeah, when you've got guys actively choosing to not represent the national team um, and it's more than one guy it's surprising you know and uh, beyond that you know they've got the FIFA young player of the year going to the tournament um, Alessandro Del Piero um, and we'll cover it in more detail but he's played out of position in one game and then not played again uh, so you know like 
results don't lie and there's there's a lot of questions to be asked about how Saki uh, handled the personnel available to him uh, in this tournament. So Group D was a really interesting one right on the surface for me looking at this when we, when we first went back to watch these games because I think with the exception of the fact that you know I supported Scotland in, in Group A. I, I initially at the time thought that was a group of death. Looking back, that was absolutely not. Everyone thinks it's their team's goal. <laughs> but looking at it now, Group D has to be genuinely a group of death in the sense that so many of these teams could, uh, could have done well. I mean, Turkey, looking at the qualifying campaign, Turkey were the worst seeded team in qualifying campaign however they had one of the best they one of the best runs um, probably disappointed a little bit this tournament but obviously the other three teams you look at how strong Portuguese team was at the time obviously Denmark came off winning the competition 92 and then you've got this runaway train in, in Croatia yeah yeah. I mean you said um, Denmark were a top seeded team and I mean they've had a nightmare haven't they right <laughs> No, like to be a top-seeded team and theoretically get a uh, get an easier group and get Croatia, um, who were so impressive in qualifying, maybe the most impressive team in qualifying, and then have Portugal coming at you with uh, Luis Figo and Rui Costa. Uh, it, it's a rough one. <laughs> it's a rough one. <laughs> yeah, the this Portugal team and this is an interesting one because this was a this is generally their golden era as, as they regard that this is a, a group of players Figo Rui Costa Kuto uh, all players that had won the the Youth World Cup in 1991 back when obviously there wasn't many of those you know now we're obviously used to all the different age groups being represented at, at FIFA and world level but this is a team yeah. that had aged through any memories of that particular team Stu a few of these to be honest caught me by surprise actually um, some memories, yes, but um, I very much enjoyed watching these games again because mm -hmm. I didn't grasp how good Portugal were. Right. Same with Croatia. So on Croatia then, let's finish on that. Yes, this was a, a terrifically talented football team. However, this is also a time of huge turmoil in the country. There was obviously civil war in that period of the world for a long time almost you know maybe a year or two before this tournament this is obviously a group of players who were itching to become an independent nation become an independent football team uh, breaking away from obviously former Yugoslavia for a long time this is their first uh, international tournament as a team how much of this stew wasn't really about football this was just general national pride and, and represent their country I'm sure a lot of it. Um, I won't tend to understand it and sure. <laughs> behind their shoes, but you know, I'm I'm assuming battling for independence that long, mm -hmm. um, as long as they did, and then be represented um, on a stage like this uh, for the first time. I'm sure it was a a massive, massive deal in Croatia. I believe um, they'd actually made a run of trying to play in the '94 World Cup and were denied it by FIFA. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's all been made to wait two years as well. Yeah. So I, I can only imagine, you know, the the passion behind it. And um, given they did so well as well, I'm sure there was, a, so there was a lot of feeling about it. So let's finish off today's podcast here with Group A, the, the one I'm sure that 
had the most interest for you and I at the time. Um, Switzerland, let's touch on them because obviously this is probably the, the sort of lesser known uh, team at the time. This is obviously managed by Roy Hodgson, um, who had, or sorry, started the campaign managed by Roy Hodgson, who in the December after qualifying for this tournament had, had left to go to, to Inter Milan. At the same time, though, Stu, this is a this is a good Switzerland team. Although the majority of them are still playing in Switzerland, this a lot of these players obviously go on to have uh, decent careers. Obviously, Stefan Chapuisat, uh, who you mentioned uh, with uh, Borussia Dortmund's run in the the Champions League uh, over this period. Obviously, Turco Maz, we've gone over a, a number of different years in the Champions League with Grasshoppers, most notably for battering Rangers. Uh, the following season in the Champions League. Any memories of Switzerland team? Obviously, watching the match is a little bit different, but you know, going into it, anything you'd you'd heard? Oh, you'd going into it, um, I remember Chapuisat, mm-hmm. and that, that's really it. To be honest with you, I actually made the mistake. I think in England were comfortable favourites for the first game. We all know how that went. <laughs> um, but I do remember a lot of the pre-game chat being around Chapuisat, and weirdly. I have a memory of ITV describing as the quarterback and um, Tony Adams saying that he agreed and they were going to sack him, right. uh, which is all just a bit weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, my, my memories of Switzerland were, I remember Roy Hodgson, I remember again the 94 World Cup, um, a one-all draw, I believe, against America, I remember, but Shap was always the only player. Um, actually, maybe they had a long-haired forward called Suter that I remember as well. Um, but at the time, I uh, I probably had Switzerland as the fourth best team in that group in my eyes. Good lad. Obviously, very closely ran with Scotland. But anyway, um, so let's touch on Scotland and Stu. Okay, Gary McAllister is better than Shaq was. <laughs> I'm not taking it back. My so so my upbringing as a Scotland fan is uh, is a strange one, right? So around about ninety six, this is very still, you know, very much still a unified Scotland, not like it is now, where uh, the Scottish national team is seen as something a bit different. But everyone I knew sports Scotland. I had a split allegiance because my my mum's from England, or half my family from England. So I, to be honest with you, was supported both teams growing up. What was it like in? Obviously, the northeast growing up and the relations with Scotland. Obviously, your team had a number of Scottish players in it. Did that sway your your liking for the team any? Um, a couple of questions before we start, Ali. Um, did you ever get beaten up for supporting England? <laughs> yes, many occasions, of course. Uh, being good in Scotland, not being. And who was the better shearer, Alan or Duncan? <laughs> I think marginally, marginally, marginally. <laughs> but no, yeah, there was a, you know, there there was a lot of Scottish players on Middlesbrough. I was always a big fan of Derek White, uh, Willie Falconer. Um, but I, th- I think my biggest respect for Scotland came from uh, when Rangers beat Leeds in the Champions League. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I was devastated about it. <laughs> Absolutely devastated. But. Um, you know, you're English, you think your league's better than Scotland's league, and then you get this one game, the Battle of Britain, where they go head-to-head, and they um, and they lose. Uh, it probably, you know, made me realise that Scottish football was a bit better than I thought it was. But then, over the years, you know, regardless of the success or lack of of the Scottish team in this era, 
nobody can argue that Colin Hendry, Gary McAllister, John Collins, you know, they, these guys were top, top level players. Sure. So last, uh, but not our second last but not least, was obviously the Netherlands, like we mentioned. Fairly struggled a little bit during qualifying. Dick Advocat would start this campaign, although strangely Stu got offered to leave his post prior to it for Johan Cruyff to come in and take over. After Cruyff couldn't agree, terms Advocat stayed on, but then halfway through the campaign would leave. Shock horror. And uh, Goose Hiddink would come in and take the team. So while it's a very very talented group of players this not all's uh, not all's well with this team certainly going at this tournament yeah what what has happened and what have i missed for this team to be favorites <laughs> uh, with the bookmakers I, I, I do remember to be honest with you if you'd have told me at the time you'd have gave me money to bet i would have probably bet on this holland team to beat england right i thought england were going to beat switzerland I thought England were going to beat Scotland at the time, and I thought England were going to lose to the Netherlands. And we all know how you know that turned out now. Uh, but there, there, there has to be, and it would make a great podcast if we could get both sides of the argument on here. There has to be some significant behind-the-scenes issues with this Netherlands team. Sure, and I, th- I think this is the interesting part for sure to break down is from a football perspective, obviously heavily dominated by the Ajax team of the time, but I think within that, Stu, it's the, almost the non-Ajax players, how they then merge into this system that's obviously managed by a non-previously Ajax manager, obviously in Hiddink, so that, that conflicting ideology, which as we know permeates almost all of Dutch football, and then within that... You have um, the big divide between the races. You have obviously the the black Suriname Dutch players, and then obviously you have the the white players who at the time were perhaps seen as being favoured differently or treated differently. So it's it's certainly not yeah. a happy camp at all. No, no, and it would uh, it would blow up in spectacular fashion against England. That's for sure. Yeah. Quite, quite player quality wise, I mean. You know, you think back to the 90s, Mark Overmars, Clarence Sadoff, Patrick Clivert, uh, the DeBoer brothers. Um, I think Terry Venables built a better England team. Uh, but it's a real tough argument to say that one for one through 11 player of a player, England uh, had the upper edge on Holland. Maybe we have that conversation in the future and break that down a bit. Yeah. Well, this. Let's finish off with England then, Stuart, talking about Terry Venable's team. This is obviously back when, unlike now, where a host would take part in qualifying, but obviously none of the matches would would count towards the seeding. However, they would be taking part in somewhat um, competitive games. This is obviously a series of friendlies that would start uh, in October of 93 and obviously would run right through to obviously the summer of 96. During that period, Stuart Venables would take uh, charge of 20 matches, right? So 20 friendly games, or sorry, 17 with three uh, Umbro Cup matches, which as we know is one of the most revered tournaments uh, <laughs> in international calendar. Um, would only lose one of them. Correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, the Hong Kong trip prior to uh, your 96 obviously didn't go down because it's very much in the tabloid era 
I put out a stream, a thread rather, on the on the Twitter handle, um, showing a number of the games, and there appeared to be booing at the end of a number of them. This is a remarkable yeah. time in English football that a manager goes one loss in twenty, and there's people unhappy with this team going into it. I mean, what were um, your own memories? I'm an England fan. Uh, there's nothing remarkable about that. <laughs> <laughs> England fans being unhappy. Um, you know, one in twenty is a is a, is a big statement for sure. But I. My memories of the time were certainly not of England being that good, Ali. Mm-hmm. No, the, re- the reason we were not at the prior World Cup is because we didn't qualify. Sure. Um, I remember a one-all draw with Romania at Wembley during this build-up where we were just played off the field, to be honest with you. And at times we're chasing shadows and Terry Venables even said, and you can find this on YouTube now, um, he even said... Uh, that he thought his players were maybe a bit too much, quote, in awe of the Romanian players uh, during the first half. So that's a little little window into exactly where England were. Um, Alan Shearer hasn't scored a goal in, what is it, 18 months or more coming into this tournament. Um, so, yeah, we lost one in 20. It's impressive. But, like, emotionally at the time, I don't ever remember thinking England were... Uh, Again, I, I thought they'd beat Scotland. I thought they'd beat Switzerland. I don't think I ever in my mind thought they'd win the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly changed my mind during the tournament. Uh, but yeah, we <laughs> we talk about going back and seeing things through different lens. Uh, we were probably a bit better going into this tournament than I realised at the time. Well, there's, it's an interesting squad. Because I look back and, and it's there's obviously players there that or passing the torch on, you've got likes of a Platt, for example, maybe even an Adams to a certain extent, uh, Pierce that maybe represent a different era, whereas you've got an Anderton, McManaman, Gary Neville in there that would obviously become the future of the of the England team. Do you think going into this that perhaps Venables was, I don't know, maybe that, that as we say in club football, the transitional manager, obviously between the two eras and perhaps just struggled to manage that overall? Over this, uh, over this tournament, uh, yeah, maybe. And, and, and another thing, if you remember, which was weird, and you know, could have easily set up England for failure, is uh, I believe Glenn Hoddle was around the camp um, during the preparations for this, right? Having already been announced as the manager after the tournament, um, so yeah, it was just all a bit, a bit of a disaster, to be honest with you, in terms of. You know the England England setup and how they approach this. I think uh, I think Venables in you know the when you encapsulate this in a window of time did a pretty unbelievable job of maximising what what he what he had uh, given the circumstances around him. I think a lot of you know that is what tournament football is about. You know we all want to have that team where you progressively build the best team in the world over a four or five year period and you stroll into a World Cup and you go win it. But uh, very rarely is that how things work. I mean, look at the Czech Republic. It's torn and look at Greece in Euro 2004. Tournament play can often be lightning strike. You know, get everyone together on the same page and perform well in a window of time. Uh, I think that's what Venables did here. 
Okay, so that's where we'll leave things today then, folks. That's our preview of the Euro 96 tournament in the can. Look forward to our next episode coming out, which will focus on all the round one games at the end of the first week of matches. Uh, You can also check out our website, retrofootballanalysis.com, for all of our video analysis, data, analysis and game reviews. And also be sure to check out our Twitter handle, which is at analysisretro for a couple little things that we like to add in there for our followers as well. So until we speak again soon, bye for now. (laughs) 